Welcome to Ripstop on the Record, a podcast where fabric enthusiasts and DIY gurus discuss all things make your own gear, with the occasional poor attempt at comedy to keep it interesting. I'm Kyle Baker, the owner and founder of Ripstop by the Roll, and we're excited to have you listening. Hi, Leah. Thank you so much for joining us here on Ripstop on the Record. Hi. Well, thanks for having me. Very excited. Of course, you are one of nine of our adventure sponsors, and obviously this is not our first adventure sponsor recording and not our last. We have one more after you, but you're near the end, um, and we are really looking forward to talk to you. I don't want to divulge too much to give away any of the cool things that you've been working on, but before we get started, why don't you introduce yourself, um, who you are, and where you live? Yep, uh, I can do that. Yeah, so I am Leah, as you might hear, I'm from Germany, um, but have been living in Switzerland for the past couple of years. Um, yeah, I like to make my own gear sometimes. <laughs> Leah, I feel like you're, the way you do DIY is different from a lot of other people that we talk to. And I don't know if that's just because... Uh, of your experience with being outdoors and DIY in general, but this is not a question that we gave you. So I'm already throwing a loop for you, but what does DIY mean to you? Like when you make your own gear, we'll talk about all the stuff you did later, but you went above and beyond what people kind of, we even expected you to do. You took on a big trip. You do a lot of cool work. How does DIY fit back into that? Or why did you even like, what does it mean to you? I don't know. I think I just have like this, like, curiosity where just like want to see if I can like make something and I got this like weird idea in my head and then I'm just like okay I think I'm gonna go for it and then like see how it turns out and like 90% of the time it's like really messy and chaotic but I think it just is like you know like you gotta fail all these times to actually like come up with something reasonable in the end and I think yeah that's yeah I think it's most of it is just like me trying to or like wondering it's like oh yeah I wonder how this is done and then like trying to like look into it and it's like oh maybe I can like put it myself kind of sounds exciting and then try to do it yeah would you consider yourself a curious person outside of DIY uh yeah I mean I'm, I'm a scientist so I think naturally yeah I tend to be pretty curious and try to like understand things so <laughs> yeah yeah. So the question I was supposed to ask you, and thank you for, for going away, is uh, what do you do? What do you like? What do you do vocationally? You mentioned you're a scientist, but what type? And then uh, what do you like to do recreationally? What was your adventure on? Um, yes. So, yeah, I, I am a scientist. Um, I work in a research institute here in Zurich in Switzerland, um, where we research glaciers. So very cool job. <laughs> um, <laughs> um yeah and um so that's that's like yeah how i make my money most of the time and um as we are studied like geophysics i'm a bit more on the physics um sides of that and yeah on the weekends since i'm in switzerland and we have those like big mountains called the alps here um i like being in the mountains and yeah do mostly i do hiking but yeah also very easy great mountaineering or just yeah in the winter some skiing ski touring although i'm really bad at it just still like to do it um and i think that sums it up i don't really have any other hobbies than mountains i think 
and yeah, making gear to go to the mountains. <laughs> Got it. So you're, you're smarter than all of us is what you're saying. <laughs> uh, I'm not, not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> Your job does sound very cool, a literally or like figuratively. A niche uh, knowledge. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is fascinating. How did you get into that real quick? How did you get into wanting to be a scientist and specifically researching glaciers? Because I think you're probably the first person we've talked to that does that. <laughs> Um, I mean, yeah, I always thought like science is really cool and I love physics for as long as I could think. So yeah, I ended up studying geophysics or physics of the earth. And then uh, for my master's, I came to Switzerland and I saw that they were doing like all this glacier and polar research and thought it's like the coolest thing. And But also thought it's like only like super badass people do that kind of stuff. But then I don't know, I just like started working in that field. And I mean, I finished by studies by now but I'm just continue, still continue working there and yeah I mean it's it's some smart people working there but it's also like normal people that have never been on a glacier before I actually like started studying them so yeah. I find that really fascinating I know <laughs> that you also recently did a public speaking event um I didn't know if you wanted to mention that as well. Uh yeah I guess we could um yeah there was a event I where I spoke about one of the long distance hikes that I did, which was a hike in the Caucasus, which is like this, I don't know. Um, it's like yeah, between like Russia and Iran, basically. It reaches like big mountain range. And yeah, I try to true hike on a trail that doesn't exist yet, the Trans-Caucasian Trail. And there was only one person before me that tried to do it. And so yeah, it was a bit of a different kind of true hike and adventure and yeah I spoke about this experience on a, like a adventure festival thingy in Switzerland a couple of weeks ago which was really fun because I never did anything like that before and uh, super nice yeah that's so fascinating you're one of the first people to do a trail not many people get to say that <laughs> yeah yeah I mean there's probably like a few other people to do it the first time because it like changes so much and yeah but it, it was definitely like an absolutely intense but also great experience <laughs> awesome so let's hop in to your adventure and what you did and then we'll get into all of the cool things that you made but tell us um what your adventure was um all the details that people love to hear so you know distance time of year location um all that jazz all that yeah um so i mean originally i had planned to um, hike across the Swiss Alps on my four-week holiday this summer, which um, didn't happen um, because of several reasons. Mostly it was some work-related stuff and me yeah, having some like health issues in the past year. So I was just like not fit enough to really like do a long trip and didn't have the time. So full disclosure, it was only like two weeks in the end and I actually didn't hike the Swiss Alps. I like hiked on the Swiss Alps for like a week and then I just went to Germany for like another two weeks and hiked there. Um, <laughs> but in the end it was still hiking um, so yeah I didn't have really have this like one big trip that I had initially like had planned to do um, which is a bit sad but hopefully that will happen some other time um, yeah but I mean I, yeah I took my gear that I made out on like lots of like weekend or longer than weekend hikes and just like three week hike in the summer and um, so yeah it was a total I think roughly a week in the Swiss Alps, um, mostly I joined my boyfriend who was actually, because he was lucky, he had time and uh, um, 
yeah, he was fit to do uh, actually like a tourist of the full Alps, not only Switzerland, but like all the countries, which was like uh, about 2000 kilometers. Actually, I don't know how long that wow. thing was. But yeah, it was like, and not the classical Alpine tourist, but more of like a mountaineering route. Also like a mixture of like simpler mountaineering and some like high routes, scrambling, pretty intense. Um, so yeah, I like I joined him for, for a couple of days on this trip. Um, which was in like Ticino and like the Italian speaking part of Switzerland. Um, and then, yeah, after that, I went back to Germany to kind of resume a route I did last year. So last winter, I think pretty much a year ago. Yeah, I like walked from Zurich in Switzerland, where I live now, to my hometown in Germany, which is about 400 kilometers north of here, because there was this lockdown and you couldn't really go anywhere else. So I just like walk to the winter. And I kind of thought, oh, it would be fun to just like continue this walk. So just for my hometown, like walk even further north. Um, so yeah, and that's what I did in the summer. Um, I initially wanted to walk to Cologne. I mean, I feel like probably all those names of places don't really say anyone anything. Um, if you're funny, yes. <laughs> but yeah, so I tried to like walk from, from my hometown to like another place I like used to live a couple of years ago. Um, and yeah, it's like in the western part of Germany, there's it's quite like rural and there's lots of like not like really super big mountains, but lots of forests and hills, and it's just like a really lovely area to go walking. Awesome. So what time of year um or what month did you spend doing the week in the Swiss Alps? And then what um month did you spend doing your uh route that you resumed in Germany? Um there was I think end of July and August, if I'm not mistaken. It's already been so long. Um, yeah, so yeah, yeah, classic summer, end of summer hike. Perfect. I'm sure the summer in the Swiss Alps is a little different than the summer in North Carolina. So we're excited to hear about all the gear that you made and that you brought with you for this trip. I know that uh, Jameson and I have been stalking your Instagram hard um, just since we, this whole thing started earlier this year. And I feel like I know you because I love your <laughs> Instagram and all your posts and you're just very personable. So that's just a plug for anyone to go follow Leah there but, um, and to get more information and pictures on what we are about to talk about. Cause you've done a great job of organically documenting your entire process. And it's not always been pretty, like you said, um, <laughs> it's been very real and, um, just an honest and honest process of, um, everything that you made. So we can kind of hop into that now. Yeah. yeah. What, tell us about what you made with the sponsorship. Yeah, so what I made with sponsorship. Um, I think the first thing I made was to make my own backpack um, with the special feature of it being that I wanted to use like the altering custom print function stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I made like a frameless, I guess something around 35, 40 liter backpack, um, which has a print of the a satellite image of the Swiss Alps on it. Um, where you can like that's has like a false color scheme so it's pretty colorful and you can see like the glaciers that are like popping out in like a pretty bright yellow so that's a bit of my like glaciologist take on the <laughs> on the thing and um yeah so that was really fun to make so it's yeah it's made from like the printed x-pack 
You did um, say it was really fun to make, but I also know from watching your stories <laughs> that you took every stitch out of your backpack and then you redid it again. So yeah, um, like three times roughly. <laughs> <laughs> so was it really fun to make or you just like a really persistent? <laughs> no one loves taking stitches out. You did it multiple no. times to take apart your backpack to put it back together. Yeah, it was definitely learning. Yeah, I did not. I mean, now I just like I've been using the backpack of, like as it is for like quite a while now and I just love it and it's great. But yeah, now that I think back like what it looked like when I made it in like April, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a disaster at first. I think it turned out like super wonky and like one panel was way too big. And I think the shoulder straps, in the end, I made like four or five complete sets of shoulder straps because I just like couldn't get them right. And then I had them like attached at like a slightly, like at a wrong angle. And it just like, <sighs> it's driving me mad. It took like, I took them like a bunch of like weekend test hikes. It's like, oh no, it's still not right. It's still not right. And um, so, yeah. And then I think the yeah, the Mesh pockets are replaced completely. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, the backpack actually went through quite a few iterations um, before I like settled on a design I have now. But uh, I think yeah, making my own gear definitely uh, taught me to like be persistent with the. <laughs> what was your sewing experience going into the adventure sponsorship? Because we we felt like you showed the skills that you were going to make stuff. We weren't really worried about you completing the project. But it is interesting to hear about people a lot of people like I sewed a little bit in high school and like, I do like to work with my hands, but I haven't done it since. Were you really familiar with the sewing machine or is this totally new? Uh, yeah, I was more of like the, I think as a like kid, my mom taught me like really the basics of like how to use a sewing machine. So like, she never has to like seem anything for me the rest of her life. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, I really haven't like done it ever since. And I hated it, like hated doing it because my mom had like this really old shit sewing machine that just like, like as soon as you use it, like all the thread just gets like tangled up and it's like a nightmare to even just make the simplest things. But then, yeah, last year during COVID lockdown, you know, just had a lot of time at hand. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, so I think the first thing I started making was just like, I upcycled like an old pair of like hiking pants and I think some like, dry bag or some ultra bag or whatever into a like some ultralight backpack that I made and it actually like turned out reasonably fine and it was really fun to make and then I don't know I was kind of hooked after this and just like kept doing more and more so like yeah within like the last yeah I think like a year ago pretty much I like started making some things I had made like one backpack a tent and I tried to make a jacket which wasn't very successful um but yeah it was uh but I pretty much went from like knowing how to like make one straight seam to, okay, I think that's good enough to try and make a backpack. I just want to chime in because a lot of people start making their own gear and they start out with like a ZPP kit. They start out with like a stuff sack or a wallet. And I have some of your notes pulled up from when you applied to your venture sponsorship. And you said you only very, and you submitted this in February, obviously, but you said you only very recently got into making gear. But since then you made a puffy jacket you had made, um, and that you were also designing your own tent. And I was like, for someone who just recently got into <laughs> IRG, like that, you didn't just like tit, like dip your toe in, girl. You like fully jumped in the pool of making your own gear. And I appreciate that. You have like a drive. Yeah. Everything you say is so casual. You're like, oh, I started it a year ago, but you just jumped into the deep end. 
Yeah, but I think it's more, especially like the tent making and stuff. I think I approach it more from like the engineering side of things. Or like maybe I'm like really, or like I really enjoy making all the like technical bits before, but then like actually like the like executing, like to make a straight seam, like that's definitely nothing I'm really good at. Uh, but everything around that I enjoy making. So, um, and I think other people come from the other side where they like really have the sewing skills, but don't really like have the like engineering and like know what like technical features you want and how to achieve them outside. So I find that making gear is so much more exciting than just sewing. And I think you probably feel the same based on what you're saying. Or like when your mom made you do, you're like, I don't want to do this. You know, if my wife asked me like hem the curtains, I'm like, I don't really want to do that. (laughs) Yeah. The sewing part's not really the fun part. You know, like it's it's the yeah, designing yeah, exactly. and then the using, <laughs> but the in between is kind of trash. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You mentioned that uh, you were taught how to sew by your mom on a pretty old machine, um, and that didn't seem like you were loving that experience too much. But what <laughs> machine are you working on now? Because that's a question a lot of people ask. They see the gear that's being made, your awesome backpacks, your Dyneema uh, shelter that we'll also get into. And they think, oh, I can't make that because I just have an at-home machine. But what machine did you use to create all of your um, projects on? A really old at-home machine um, is what I'm using. Uh, so yeah, I, yeah, like what did the first tent did and the stuff I did like last year, I did on my mom's also a machine, which was an absolute nightmare. And then beginning of this year, I just purchased like my own like Craigslist, second-handed, at least, I don't know, 30-year-old domestic sewing machine for like 100 bucks. And that thing was like turned out to be really amazing. It's like a Prater Star, I forgot the other specifications, um, but I love it. It's it's great. And the only thing it's like struggling with is like like super heavy duty applications, obviously, because it's just like a quite um, fine domestic machine. Um, but yeah, so I, I actually ended up buying a Singer heavy duty like two months ago, but absolutely hate it. It like doesn't work at all for me. So oh, I, think, no. I, don't know, I really regret getting it. So if anyone needs a second-handed value <laughs> Singer heavy duty, let me know. Really? Um, so. I love hearing that from you because like I said, a lot of people see gear from other people or that we post or wherever they're researching, making their own gear. And they think, oh, I can't make my own gear because I don't have a thousand dollars to shell out on a Juki or whatever. And you're like, nah, I just went on Craigslist and got another 30 year old machine and it was a hundred dollars. And that's just like for everyone listening who has had that one thing that's been holding them back of not having the best machine or right machine is that there is no best machine or right machine. It's like what Jameson has always said, just the machine that you can find and you're resourceful and went through Craigslist. So that is awesome. Props to you. And then I think it's funny too, that you say you hate the Singer HD because that's the one that I think we recommend to people the most and that our users use the most. That's like the most popular machine ever. So it's hilarious. Cause like, I know it's a great machine, but it's funny to me that you had a bad experience with it still just because it happens. Yeah. Like you can't control it. I don't it, know you know? why. Yeah. I don't know what's, what's wrong with me or with the machine or why I hate it, but it just seems so like flimsy compared to my, like, I mean, it costs like three times as much as my Craigslist machine, but like it actually seems to be like much like lower quality than the Craigslist machine. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it was just lucky with like the yeah, like product machine that I had before. Yeah. That's too funny. 
We got a little bit away from um, the projects that you were making, so we can hop back into that or just wherever you want to take the conversation. But uh, you mentioned the frameless backpack and the custom print that you did. Let's talk a little bit more about that, and then we can hop into the other things. Um, What... And then the reason I'm bringing this up is because another thing that you wrote in your adventure sponsorship application was one of the reasons you wanted to make your own gear was because it was hard to find things in the cottage company industry or the outdoor industry in general that gear specifically made for women. Um, And I think you did a lot of testing and things uh, for your pack to specifically fit you because you're a lady. Um, So I wanted to talk a little bit more about that and then get more details as far as like what fabric you printed on and anything else you wanted to share about your backpack that you took apart three times that you now love. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So yeah, as you said, like, I mean, going through like five iterations of shoulder straps um, (laughs) kind of shows that I like really wanted to like get it like fit right to me. Um, But yeah, I mean, especially like in Europe, I mean, there's not much of a like cottage gear industry at all, but even like from all the like US companies. And I mean, yeah, I did some like true hiking in the US, so I like know the market a little bit there as well. And yeah, I've really been struggling to like find gear that like fits me. And especially, I think the, the most annoying part I personally found were like sh- like shoulder straps and backpacks because there's so many like great like ultra backpacks and like oh they look cool but I like tried them on and I mean I'm not like super curvy or super skinny for women so I think I'm still like fairly like average like square shaped body like or square shaped like shoulders but. I don't know, just like the shoulder straps, like they never really fit. They were like way too wide or like pressing on my collarbones were like quite, I guess, standing out quite a bit. So yeah, just like, I don't know, I got like really angry and really annoyed. And like a lot of the companies, yeah, they just like don't make them. It's like, oh yeah, it's unisex, but obviously it's like made to like fit a male shoulders. Um, Or like the problem with the... the, What do you call it in English? The chest strap? The, or the sternum the strap. strap, yeah. The sternum strap, yeah, yeah, yeah. So for people listening and other women that are making their own packs, you said you went through the five iterations of making those shoulder straps fit right. So in the end, what did you find was the tweak or the thing that you had to do that last fifth time for it to fit right? I think... Yeah, trying to like get the, the angle right. So like I definitely wanted to a bit more angle, whereas like most of the like male like shoulder straps are like attached in like a uh, like horizontal line. Um, and yeah, I try like I experiment a lot with like different like curvatures because because there's always like the oh yeah I have like the S shaped shoulder strap or the J shaped ones or I don't know what. And yeah, I like experimented with like all kinds of like different like curvatures and shapes to just like get one that fits me and I think especially like yeah like trying to find one that like doesn't cut in my collarbone that took a bit of time and it actually ended up being like fairly straight but not like perfectly straight so just like curved in like the one right spot and also I think one thing that really helped me was to like not make them like super wide and super bulky because often everyone just like advertising like oh yeah like super nicely cushioned shoulder straps and like super thickly padded and that's I don't know for me personally I like find it horrible like it really doesn't fit me I had like I don't want to drop any names here of big companies um, but I had another (laughs) 
like I had some like college gear like backpack just before that and it was just like a shoulder strap was so wide and just didn't fit at all so I ended up like cutting them like down to like half the width and like shaping them a little bit and that made it a little bit better but still wasn't perfect so there was a bit of my like motivation to like really see what it needs to like make that fit. Yeah, I think as a woman and any other ladies that are listening to this, um, which there aren't many of us in the MYOG world, unfortunately, which is always a surprise because I think 75% of our customers are men. And then we just get that one little quarter that are women. So I know that we do have ladies that are listening to that podcast and I know that they are going to relate and be on the other side of this listening, being like, yes, yes. That is (laughs) the struggle that we've been dealing with is that these packs are, like you said, made straight across and made mostly for men and like, have these super big bulky straps that end up like rubbing I know I always get like weird bruises right here after a backpacking (laughs) trip that's always really fun um so I love that you really spent the time doing the testing and unstitching it restitching it and doing all these iterations to try to find that shoulder strap um exactly right and then I'm just jealous that I don't have one of your packs because that's my biggest complaint too every time I go backpacking it's that and then the hip belt so um, yeah, yeah, the hip belt. I mean, <laughs> I, I made like a fairly minimalistic hip belt, so like it wasn't quite as much of an impact. But yeah, it's the hip belt is the other thing, and I, I feel like that is not like hundred percent sorted out yet. So I think I need a few more like iterations <laughs> for the next backpacks. Could you touch on yeah, a little perfect. bit more about the straps that you made? Because that is, although our demographic is too lopsided, I do think it is really like one of the biggest selling points of DIY that you can make gear that actually fits you. So if you don't mind sharing your kind of your patented technology, if you will, for other people and other women that want to make packs that fit them better. So you started out with the angle connecting the the straps to the pack being a bit more dramatic, right? Where I think normally the angle is like five degrees or something, but you took that a little bit more angled. Is that right? Yeah, angle it okay. a little bit more. And okay. I also like made them like closer together because often they okay. attach like too mm-hmm. far out. So like the straps just end up like sliding up off the shoulders. And so yeah, they're like really like sitting in the right place. But then still at the same time, I want them to like curve out so they don't like grab on my collarbones. So I think like, yeah, getting that like curve right here was probably like the, okay. the hardest bit, at least so for me. And then, stronger angle closer to the neck and then it bowed out around your neck but over your collarbones and then from there you said the strap was fairly almost kind of straight down going across your torso without a without a super strong in curve is that right yeah i mean i kind of made them i attached them like pretty high up so like the okay. when i went attached to the back panel mm-hmm. um at the, at the lower end it wasn't like super far down whereas like it would just like go over my breast so like you know when you have it like go yeah. over the shoulders it yeah. like kind of like ends up going like under my under my arm hit fairly high up um so yeah that that helped for me I mean again I feel like I want to make like another five iterations and try <laughs> with like different like shapes I've got some like girlfriends I'm already like putting out like models for them to test um <laughs> that's awesome so I don't want to get into this too too much not because it's not a wonderful conversation but it's just a, it's a much broader conversation, but besides your standard dose of kind of misogyny in the world in general, why do you think more people, especially in cottage vendors don't make more specific gear? Because I'm sure it's possibly a, you know, more 
more with more women would get into the background should they had gear that actually worked for them. I'm sure that's a big barrier where one, it's expensive for sure. But a lot of people, if it's not comfortable, you're not going to want to do it again. So we're not encouraging more women to get outside if they're having a bad time. <laughs> yeah, I really don't know why that is. I mean, I feel like most of the like, you know, big companies like, I don't know, like the Osprey or whatever, or Deuter or Gregory, I think they're big mm-hmm. in the US too. They, I mean, they all make like female design backpacks. And I mean, a, a, Osprey actually makes like really nicely fitting backpacks. Um, so I think in, like for like the broader like backpacking audience, that's like totally fine. And there definitely is enough of a market. But I think mostly like the ultra light gear that's aimed at like true hiking and that kind of adventures, there's, I, don't, I mean, I don't know what percentages if there's more male true hikers or like male like more ultralight male true hikers uh, i feel like they probably are from my experience um so i think that's that's mostly like the market where yeah. there's like like a lack of female yeah i think also too there are very few women-owned companies who are making gear specifically for women. Yes, there are women who are designing uh, clothing for women. Um, mm-hmm. And there's, there's you know, a very select handful of those. But off of the list of cottage companies, um, obviously not the bigger ones, like not anything you would find in REI. So Osprey obviously makes women's packs. But when we break it down to cottage companies, there are, from my knowledge, not any cottage company that is owned by a woman where a woman is making packs for other women women and if that if someone is out there listening and you feel inspired by what we're saying we're telling you that you can probably quit your job in a year and be making packs full time because there are tons of women's facebook groups and i know that you do a lot with women in the backcountry um connecting them and things like that so yeah, if you're hearing this and you're like, I'm going to be that person that's going to be the person to start this women's backpack revolution and then cottage your company, like you will not uh, be bored. <laughs> I think a lot of people <laughs> are looking for that. And that's why a lot of women are making their own packs, like you said, because you just needed to take that strap adjustment, make it a little thinner, make it angled the right way. And then that was your trick when all these other men who are doing cottage companies are, they're just making packs for their guy friends yeah and then it's just like still doesn't fit right so (laughs) I love that you can relate to that so much um especially being one of the only girls on the team and one of the only girls at Ripstop it's like really making my heart so full right now (laughs) oh that's that's really nice to hear but yeah I'll I'll let you know if I have like a few more prototypes to run through yeah that's good too yeah, it's, I mean, it's a bit hard being being in Europe because, I mean, there just generally is like not a, like an ultralight gear market at all. And then so having like a female ultralight gear market would be like even smaller or even like harder. But yeah, like in the US, I mean, just. Do you yeah, have yeah. any plans on, I know a lot of people who make their own gear will help, uh, will, you know, give their design or template or sell it to other people? Do you have any plans to really perfect your women's pack and to share your pattern with others? Uh, Don't really have a plan yet because, I mean, so far it's not like a proper pattern. It's just like, (laughs) I mean, I just made it. I would actually like have to go back and like make a pattern from a backpack that I made, like going 
going into verse. Um, but yeah, I mean, eventually, if it's like something that I'm like really settled on, it's like I feel like it fits. Then yeah, I could definitely imagine like yeah, making a pattern from it and spreading it. I mean, yeah, but I also I mean, I never really make patterns. I just like throw some things on a sheet of paper and then just go for it. Yeah. So um, <laughs> that was gonna be my my next question if you're not going off of patterns what is your process for making a pack from scratch are you doing it out of tyvek are you sewing it out of a cheap cotton material to get to the dimensions right if you're just freehanding everything how is what is your process like for that um most of the time i just actually like i draw something on a piece of paper with like the rough dimensions and i look at the, at the backpacks that i've got and like what I like about them, what I don't like about them. I mean, but now I've like actually made a few packs, so I like also know from like the past packs, like what worked or what, what what didn't work. And if like something turns out really nice, I like really take the measures and like um, I take the measurements of it and like, yeah, document it. And then I just kind of like take all those like puzzle pieces together and then I'm, yeah, just like paint it on a piece of paper. I think only like usually for the shoulder straps and for the hip, like um, for the hip belt, I like, have like an actual pattern drawn on for the rest it's just yeah <laughs> freestyle it <laughs> so far. but I feel like that might have to change the future potentially even make a few more packs <laughs> that is seriously impressive just because most people like Jameson shaking his head we're both just like jaws drop because most people one you don't really have a background in like you didn't go to school for sewing or product design and then you're over here like freehanding a backpack like <laughs> yeah, but it might it might not be the most like efficient um approach to be honest <laughs> i just so, like couldn't get myself to do it any differently yet <laughs> i'm I I could talk about your backpack forever, frankly, and just DIY backpacks in general, but I know you have a timeline. So I want to move to your tent because that's one thing for me that's still really intimidating. Like I, I would consider myself very adventurous. I make a lot of stuff. I love like different things up here. And like, I love to test out different ideas, but a shelter is one of those things that I, I don't really want to try even (laughs) like, I don't, there's not really a piece of me that is really interested in that. So I would really like to dig into how you did that and why you did that. And then a little bit about your design and stuff. But first off, how scared were you when you started this or was it, did did you have any hesitation about jumping into this? Yeah. I mean, for the tent, that was definitely like terrified, just like placing the like fabric order. Good. That's good to know. It was was a lot of money, even with like the (laughs) adventure sponsorship, it was still a lot of money. (laughs) I'm so glad because if you had, if you didn't have any hesitation, I might've had more questions for you. So I'm glad that you were a little bit worried about it too. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely intimidating. So what was the design? Tell us about, just give us kind of the brief uh, overview of your shelter. Um, yeah. So uh, what is that? So yeah, I wanted to make a single, like one person, single ball cube and fiber tent. And I mean, I think generally why I had like confidence in like, DIY shelters is because when I hiked a director PCT, um, I was with a hiking with a Swedish guy who actually brought his own like pyramid style shelter that he made himself. So it's like a new, like, okay, if you like make your own shelter, it can actually survive a true hike. So, you know, like, because before I'm mean, like, never would have like thought of like taking, you know, like your homemade gear on like such a long adventure. So that kind of like gave me the confidence, like, okay, it, it can work. Um, and then, yeah, so, but I never really, like, owned a cube fiber, 
like shelter before. I mean, again, in Europe, it's even less of a thing. I think there's like zero companies that make human fiber fancy. Um, so yeah, and I didn't, yeah, I didn't really, I never like worked with human fiber before either. Um, I think I tried to like make one dry bag as a, as a test um, to even like see like what this material is about and how does like bonding and cluing stuff works and all that. <laughs> And like how thick it is, because I had like really had no like feeling for it. Um, but it's like, yeah, for like still nylon and stuff, I kind of like, I mean, I've used tents before, so I know what it is like. And yeah, I wanted a single person tent that sets up with tracking holes. I had made like a tunnel one person tent, very much based on like the top 10 moment. So it has those like carbon straps, triangles and the end, mm -hmm. which is like a great way to increase the space inside the tent um and then you yeah, understand the it had like one pole so i kind of like took that and um wanted to make like a tracking pole version of that and single wall so i think it's very much based on the another top end because top end designs are great um the top end notch with the like yeah like two peaks two poles um one like rich in the center and then those like carbon triangle strut thingies at the end um yeah, that was the idea I had. What was your process for that? Are you also freehanding a tent? Are you just like sitting down and drawing it out on some Dyneema? Um, I mean, I know a little bit about your process because I have been obviously stalking your Instagram since then um, and have watched all of your stories and not missed a beat. But um, tell us a little bit about the initial process for this tent, how you went through the patterning and beyond. Um, yeah, so I mean, in the beginning, I didn't even know I was going to make one thing that looks like the notch. Um, I just wanted you know, like a single person tent that's like uh, like single walled and probably as light as possible. I wanted like to have a really small footprint, but still like make it useful and like, yeah, alpine conditions. I wanted as like little stakes as possible as well, because often you have like really rocky terrain and it's really hard to like get stakes in the ground. So I wanted to like make it freestanding with as like few stakes um, as possible. Um, so yeah, what, what I did was to first like go onto so, like um, like SketchUp, which is like this 3D painting, I don't know what you call it, 3D model software. I had no idea how it worked. Um, so it took a bit of time to like figure that out. Um, and that's a type of software and, yeah. that you had access to to design this? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a free open, no, not open source, uh, but there's like a free version of it. Um, okay. You can just like model it online, yeah. Um, my sister is an architect, so I, I was kind of, like in the beginning. I like asked her if she can like has, has got some <laughs> ideas, but I think by the time she like actually like was ready to help me, I don't really, like figured it out myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, again, it was probably not like the most efficient or professional way, but it just like was one way that that, that worked for me. Um, and yeah, I like went to like a bunch of different designs. First, I tried like pyramid style tens with like one pole and. Yeah, then I always like made one design um, on like the 3D software and then try to kind of get the patterns for the different panels, um, like get the rough dimensions. Then I bought some like builder's top, just like this, I don't know what you're calling me, just like really cheap, big tops you can like get in a hardware store. Um, and I tried to make like a prototype out of them and yeah, like the first few prototypes were like an absolute nightmare. Like I couldn't even <laughs> pitch them. <laughs> like they were just like, 
that was horrible. I think it was really hard to also figure out like, you know, like the thing with the catenary curves, which is like those curves you usually implement to like make it more stable and like make it less saggy. And yeah, it was, it was really hard to like, like even get used to that and like understand like what's happening. So I was like, oh, this looks a bit saggy. So like edit a curve and then like, it just didn't work at all anymore. It's like, oh wait, so what, what, what just happened? So I went through like, I don't know, I think it was like four or five like top prototypes in the beginning until I kind of like settled roughly on one design. Um, and then, yeah, like when I was like pretty much settled on a design, I actually like had to pattern like print it out by like professional printing service because you have just like really big pattern pieces that I can't just print at home. Um, and then from that, I like made one last prototype from top was like, okay, I think that should that looks like reasonable enough. I think I could try to make that for Human Fiber now. And that's when I placed that order, but was still terrified that everything's gonna go wrong. Oh yeah, and one other thing I wanted to do was to like keep the like surface as small as possible because Cuban fiber is so freaking expensive. <laughs> so, because <laughs> I was looking at something like the Pro Trail from top, and I know it's like a A-frame style shelter, but actually would have like cost, oh, I think almost a hundred bucks more just for the material cost because it just like uses more uses more fabric. So also I was like trying to like minimize the the amount of fabric it uses. <laughs> yeah, I actually have the the old version of that tent that you're mentioning, the tarp tent. Oh, yeah. And it it's a mammoth. It's a big tent as a big footprint. So I definitely see what you're saying about that. But you definitely, I mean, you're female, I don't know how tall you are specifically, but I think you're not like those, those tents specifically, the tarp tents are made for someone who is like six, five. So <laughs> I don't think you were battling any like height, height issues there, but you were definitely smart to try to make the tent sm as small and usable as possible for yourself. Um, so you said you had four to five prototypes for your tent. Is this something where you're each time making a new tent or are you again ripping those stitches out with your seam ripper and just no it was definitely like just making it completely new because it was okay. I, mean, I think one I like took apart a little bit or sometimes it's like I made like small adjustment in one model but then often it was like okay now this model is like a bit shit and, like, start over again. <laughs> and clearly so you really were just like ditching like the whole idea and then like starting over again from not from zero but from from the from the start <laughs> And you mentioned, obviously, you weren't prototyping with Dyneema because that would be exorbitant. Um, but you did, you said you did most of your prototypes with just like one of those cheap tarp tarps so you can get at like any general store. I know, I think I know what you're talking about, like kind of like the blue, you know, you just go to the like yeah, Walmart or green. Superstore. Yeah. So yeah, you just like would do it over and over with the same material. Did you stick to that tarp material or did you kind of play around with prototyping with different materials? No, I, I stuck to that because I mean, I knew like, yeah, unlike you know, like the still nylon I used the tent before, like I knew that like human fiber is not really elastic or anything. So like it has fairly similar properties and it's a bit like stiff, rigid-ish, which the human fiber is as well. So I figured it's actually pretty reasonable. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's like much thicker and like much more like, sturdy but I think overall like the, the properties are kind of similar and yeah it was really just like the cheapest material I could find even just making like five I was thinking about making it from like from Tyvek the prototypes but like making five ten like real size Tyvek 
pens is also freaking expensive. So it's like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I hate to break it to you, but we <laughs> did just, I know you saw it. We did just bring on Tyvek by the yard and it's it's three dollars so <laughs> if anyone is curious about prototyping your own tent four to five times you can check out the new Tyvek that we sell so what uh, material did you end up um what weight of Dyneema did you end up going for for your uh shelter um yeah so initially I mean I yeah I did like my one test try bag that I made I used a uh, like 0.5 owns uh human fiber which is what like most people use for the tents and i like made a dry bag and i know for, it's not a typical dry bag material but i just like looked at it and it's like i feel like i can't really i mean i know i know i should be able to trust it but i just like i, I had trust issues let's say <laughs> it's like really really thin <laughs> like i couldn't get myself to like fully you know trust my life and well-being into like thin fabric and I also like knew I wanted it to be like long like longer lasting um which yeah I know I mean like it's it's probably fine like the 0.5 uh, ounce cube of fiber but for like the you know if I like still want to use this tent in like three four years and like use it a lot then it yeah it probably wouldn't survive as long I, I know that like the thinner you like human fiber shelter is usually like after one true hike or the equal amount of use of one true hike it's they're usually done um because they like get the little pinholes and stuff in them so I like I went for the 0.8 ounce cube fiber and I'm very happy with the choice because I think in the end it added only what was it like 80 grams which is just under three ounces or two and a half ounces or whatever um to the weight but it just it, you know it, it feels like a strong and solid 10 now. so you did the 0.8 Dyneema for the entire shelter um, that is the floor and also the walls? Uh, for the floor, I used the one ounce, uh, I think, yeah, the one ounce, anyway. What is the general perspective on Dyneema composite fabrics out there? Because like what you were saying, if I remember correctly, is that not a lot of companies are using or making DCF shelters in Europe. Is it did you were you introduced to DCF in America? Are you super familiar with it? Do you see a lot of DCF stuff? Because like in America, we see a lot of like hyperlight mountain gear and Z packs, and a lot of ultralight companies use DCF, and it's very very popular. A lot of tent companies like Tarp Ten and Hyperlight and Z packs. You know, other people. What's the what's the industry like around DCF in Europe? I feel like it's basically non-existent. Um, I mean, it's it's used that I know in like some you know like climbing ropes and like climbing equipment so so I know some people from climbing and mountaineering they like heard the term before but there's I think there's, there's no tents or backpacks or anything made from anymore so yeah I've only like heard of it because I yeah true hiked in the US and got to know all the like ultralight stuff and I mean yeah there's I think there's no companies that make Cuban fiber tents at least I don't know maybe there's some, like really really tiny ones but I just I, think I couldn't really name any right now um, so That's like so all the stuff you can buy here, you like have to import from the US and it's freaking expensive. I mean, otherwise I probably would have even like, I feel like if I would have lived in the US, I would have just like bought a top 10 and <laughs> be happy. But yeah. like here, it's like actually way, way, way more expensive than it is in the US. Um, so that was one of the reasons I wanted to like try to make my own. Yeah. That's so interesting. I wonder why it is. Is there, are there questions or are there concerns that users have there? Cause like, I know 
I've read some things about people hiking. I think it's in the Alps. Maybe it's in the Dolomites where they, they are hesitant about DCF because the amount of time that they're on rock and, you know, abrasion resistance and stuff like that. But for a lot of other people, there's a lot of parts of Europe that are not just covered in rocks. You know, a lot of people could use it very much, you know, the same as we do here. Do you know why there's those questions? Uh, It's yeah, I think it's, it's generally, I mean, everything is a lot more like conservative in like terms of gear. I mean, just ultralight hiking is not a thing. So it's like super like weight conscious thinking really is not like probably yeah it's not super common so like i mean everyone just has their like hilloback tents and you know they're fine but they're also like complete overkill for i feel like 95 percent of, of all situations um but i mean if you like yeah if you want to buy a tent you buy a hilloback tent i think I've, I've seen like like big agnes so a few times and like the msr tents are like getting more and more popular but there's still like a bit of a like niche thingy. So you still have to like, oh God, like, this is like an ultralight thing. And you know, like it's, it really helps you because you're not carrying like six pounds of tent on your backpack. Maybe you should try that. Um, but yeah, I think it's just, I mean, one thing is definitely the conditions. I mean, often a lot of hiking Europeans do is so like Scotland or Scandinavia or whatever, where it is pretty, like it's always super wet. It's always super windy. So it's really not the conditions where you want to use like the ultralight like single wall tent but I mean like yeah and you don't really get the conditions like on the you know the PCT it's mostly dry except in Washington so you yeah you really can get away with like like lighter gear easier and yeah I mean in the Alps it's it's different because it's really high and exposed so if you have like good weather great I mean alternate gear is perfect for that um, but it also you know it's you're like up in really high mountains and they're pretty exposed so you can like get super rapid changes um in the weather so you way have like way more often you have like intense thunderstorms and all that stuff and in the summer if you're in the alps so you have like thunderstorms basically every day with like you know hail and stuff and it is really rocky and you like yeah there's no like campsites or it's not as much like open space you're often like confined to like smaller more sketchy like tent sites so yeah it, it is a bit hard on the gear for sure so i think that might that might play a role but i think one big piece is just yeah, it's just, I don't know. It just hasn't arrived here yet. Yeah. Yeah. So that, <laughs> moon, yeah. that begs the question, I think, how did your tent hold up over your trip? Uh, it held up great. Um, I had, I guess, half of the time, maybe it was raining, but it was perfectly fine. I had some like pretty windy conditions held up fine. So I think all the like prototyping and uh, yeah, really like knowing what I would like, want the shelter to be like definitely paid off. So I'm, yeah. I'm more than happy. Yeah. Something that continues to amaze me about DIY and your own gear is despite pretty, I think a lot of people have a fear whenever they make something that it's not going to work, that it's going to be a, you know, a catastrophic failure. You're going to be in the mountains. You're going to get like hailed on. You're going to, you know, die of hypothermia because your gear failed you. And I don't honestly know of any of those stories. I'm not saying that people haven't had catastrophic failures with their gear, but I think if you do a lot of research and you work really hard and you prototype, I think that our gear fails us a lot less than we even ever imagine. And I think that's one of the great pros of making your own gear. If you do have hesitations, totally do your research, you know, try to try to ease those fears for you, but there's a really low chance it's actually going to fail you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think 
that's that's one thing because you really like know like what your gear can do as well you like you know the limits and you like know what conditions you're taking it into pretty well whereas like if you just buy something from like a company and it's like okay so i've got a tent now i can take it to the mountains and then it like rips apart in like a storm and it was way too much for it to handle like yeah i mean you know you get like gear failures from like many like professionally made gear as well because often people just don't really like know what they can like put on the gear and what they can't whereas like if you make your own gear you really like know like okay this is this is what it's good for and especially if it breaks like i really know how to fix it and like what the issue is or like just all those small things i really know like my gear inside out which at least for me like really makes it make it makes a big difference i have a few questions about your tent real quick you did mention that it was um non-freestanding so it's supported and pitched by trekking poles and i know in comparison to the z-pax tent which is also the same supported by trekking poles a lot of people's gripe with that is that it has like 18 tie outs <laughs> how many tie outs did your tent have and then um following on to that you mentioned it rained half the time so what was your um waterproofing method for your dcf shelter yeah um so for the pegs yeah, i really one of my yeah, like goals was to have as little stakeout points as possible and i ended up yeah with four points in the end which yeah works great so four point for like i guess for like most of the nights where it's like mildly windy and like reasonable weather when it gets like more stormy you can add i think another four stakes with like yeah tie out points and then it's definitely really really stormproof at least from my testing so far um, so yeah that was surprisingly surprisingly good i thought it would be worse um and yeah but it's nice if, yeah if like rocky campsites or anything you can just like set it up with four rocks and it's it's yeah. fine for really and like Four to eight tent stakes is a lot nicer than 18. Than 18, yeah. <laughs> and also, it's lighter. I mean, that's the thing. Like, CPEX, they are like, you know, they never like add the weight of the of the stakes, of the stakes. To, the, to, the, to the gear. And it's like, oh, we have this like 400 or like less than like one pound 10, but mm -hmm. you have like another pound of stakes to carry. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas yeah. if you like have one that actually gets away with like less stakes, you actually really save quite a lot of, quite a lot of weight. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's it's still important to have some like extra like guidelines, and even if you don't like have the stakes for them, you can just like put them in with a rock or whatever. If you know it goes really bad, um, you still want to have like all the ways to um, yeah stake it out. And the other thing, oh yeah, waterproofing. Um, yeah, so I just used um, like the double sided tape. Uh, what it's called? Double sided double sided tape. That's um, a, it's the Dyne Dyneema repair tape yeah the one inch yeah exactly and i just oh, no, yeah, you're I, saying I, you use the double-sided yeah yeah and i just the, made okay. my own cuban fiber tape for, so i like you just take the double-sided tape tape it onto like a stripe of dyneema fabric cut it out so it's a bit more work but um, perfect so you made your you own have, repair tape with the exactly, double-sided yeah. psa perfect i love that yeah. and then yeah you just like glue it onto the i made like flat felt seams for most of the tent and then yeah just like glue it over even like cut it in half because half an inch was enough i think and was cheaper um so really like try to budget um very well and yeah just like glued it on and really like press it on i i sewed the tent so i, I mean some people just like when they make cuban fiber shelters they just like only bond it or like only use the tape so they like don't sew it which 
I don't know, that just sounded a bit terrifying to me. <laughs> and yeah, since I, and I think the reason why I do it because the, the stitching had like weakened the, mm-hmm. weakened the material, but since I used the like 0.8 ounce of like a thicker human fiber, yeah. I figured it's less of an issue. And if you make the like stitches fairly far apart, it should be fine. And yeah, they, they worked. I mean, that's a nice thing also about cube fiber, even if you like accidentally like poke a hole in the tent in the process, which might have happened. <clears throat> like, you, know, you can't just like, you know, patch it, like put a sticker mm-hmm. or like, yeah, repair tape on it. And it's, it's good. One thing I'm noticing with you, Leah, is that you've done a ton of research and I mean, you, it seems like you've covered all your bases from like stitch length to making your own repair tape and shape and pattern. Where did you go to do your research? Who did, did you know other people have made stuff or surely you had to find a couple different sources that were really helpful to you. Can you share those sources with other people and other makers that might be interested in doing similar things? Um, I think mostly just Google things, but I mean, the, the two websites <laughs> where you find most of the, of the, um, of the information is yeah, like the MIUG or even like the ultralight backpacking subreddits. Mm-hmm. And um, then I think the other thing that also has a lot of information is backpacking light, just like the, the website and the forums where they, mm-hmm. yeah, they especially like for like the really, really technical bits, they're, they're great source for that. Yeah, no, those are great. And that's a good, that's yeah. a good plug for both of them because there's a wealth of knowledge there and it can be hard to find, but if you know what you're looking for, it's there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I've definitely spent a lot of time like trying to like <laughs> yeah. take information and yeah. <laughs> awesome. So out of these, well, before we move on, you had the shelter and you had the backpack. Was there any other gear that you made for your trips this year? Um, I think I actually ended up making, I uh, made a Merino shirt although not because you don't yet have Maria, but maybe in the future. Um, but yeah, from like the, basically like the German equivalent of your shop. Um, um, and I made a fleece, I think. And I made another puffy jacket, which actually turned out much better than the first one. But like, just like, yeah, like a climber shield apex puffy jacket. Cause I'd always tried to make one last year. And although it was warm and functional, it just looked really horrible. It was a bit embarrassing <laughs> to wear. So the second one like actually like looks like a jacket. So um, I've been using it a lot since. <laughs> but it was a thing. Um, what was harder? Was it harder to make clothing or was it harder to make a tent? Because both of those seem horrible. <laughs> I mean, a tent definitely really? was, was by far the hardest bit. I mean, it took me ages. And I, at some point, yeah, like I got so like the floor didn't work out. I like, got so frustrated that I had to like. So it's like leave it for a month and then like get back to it because otherwise I probably like would never finish it. So yeah, the tent was by far the hardest. Um, mm. I think the backpack is probably the most enjoyable because you get like the most like, it's just like so rewarding because it's fairly, it's not super easy to make, but fairly easy to make. And you just have like a backpack in the end, which is amazing. And for clothing, I mean, like just making like a merino shirt is, is pretty easy. Once you like have to cut down, it's really, really simple. Uh, making a puffy jacket was a bit harder, but since it was my second one already, I kind of like learned from all the mistakes on the first one. So it was actually like a lot easier now um, to make that. And yeah, if you, yeah, I just found a pattern for jacket and that worked. And so it was not, it was not too hard to make. Yeah. That's awesome. How did uh, the climate shield hold up um, during your trip? You said it rained a lot, but how did the performance of that jacket uh, play out for you? 
Yeah, I loved it because I, I so far I've only used like down jackets and that's always the thing. Like if it just like starts to drizzle a little bit and it's cold, it's like, oh no, but I don't want my down jacket to get wet because it's going to die. And for the climate shield one, just like, oh yeah, if it's just drizzling a bit. Like who cares? Um, so yeah, it was actually really nice to have like a jacket. It's like not as sensitive as a, as a down jacket. So yeah, absolutely love it. Uh, basically, it, like I'm wearing it as my everyday jacket now. So it's it's great. Is there one story or one moment that sticks out to you from your trip or your trips about your gear where you're like, oh man, I'm so glad I made this or I'm so glad I added this feature. There's one moment where you're like, ah, this is what making your own gear is all about. Uh, I think mostly it's just when like people look at my backpack because which it, it looks, I mean, it has like this special printed pattern. So it looks quite a bit like different than like <laughs> most other backpacks. I mean, I love the design of it, but it's definitely a bit like, special. So like, yeah, people like, giving me like weird looks for like this like rather unusual like type of gear but then like seeing like how it performs and so like, especially like I mean it's mostly waterproof and all that stuff so like that I like, see that it like works great and that's uh, that's yeah. like a kind of you know like moments like makes me pretty happy not to backtrack too much but we didn't touch on the type of fabric that you used for your backpack and what you printed that on. So if you want to share a little bit about that and then maybe your experience of working with that fabric and then how, uh, just kind of like your review of how you felt like it performed for you as a backpack fabric. Um, yep. So I used, uh, for the printed panels, I've used a XPAC B21 ripstop because like it doesn't have like the big like X patterns. And yeah so like the print actually looks like really 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 nice on it i'm like i'm still like i look at this backpack every time like wow this print looks so cool and i mean i've used it for yeah almost half a year now and i'm using it quite a lot and like it looks as good as new and absolutely impressed with it so i love this fabric and i love working with it so like yeah xpack is like super nice to work with it's it's like just a perfect amount of like being like rigid and not super slippery so it's yeah it's it's a dream but definitely recommend it um yeah and for the for the like mesh pockets i've used the like grid stop uh, the nema reinforced grid stop mesh stuff and that's also great because i mean it's always the first thing that breaks on a backpack is the mesh so like i would never use like normal mesh on a backpack because it always i mean it breaks like you know it breaks and then the backpack still can go for like another two years but you like have broken mesh pockets. So like, you know, if you like use the X-Pack, which is like a super durable fabric, you also want to use like durable mesh because otherwise it just doesn't make sense. So either make like everything from super flimsy lightweight materials or make everything super sturdy, but like don't mix them because that's... <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, like those those two fabrics, I think those are like the main, main two fabrics that I used. And yeah, it was worked great. I mean, absolutely love them. I think never going back to anything else. <laughs> Actually, I discovered there's a there's a, um, apparently like a recycling based version of XPack, which is called EcoPack, which I like saw some shop in Europe had recently, which is like I think it, it, I just worked with it for like one backpack now, and it's it, it feels exactly well, pretty much the same. I mean, I'm not an expert on like all the technical things. It feels the same. It looks the same. But yeah, it's like based for well, like I think ninety percent recycled materials. So I feel like that would be like the next upgrade if like XPEC can, you know, like get their recycled materials in. But. I'm going to speak in, in code here, but there, 
um, there are future versions of X Pack that will <laughs> utilize recycled material as well. Awesome, perfect. In the future, <laughs> yeah. I do think it's a big initiative for a lot of the manufacturers of these textiles, DSM specifically, and also specifically Dimension Polyant, um, who produces X Pack that. It is a big initiative, obviously, um, to go green for any any industry. And the fabric industry is one that it takes a little more time because you're making these things from scratch. Like they're designing a whole new fabric. But I do know from the people that we've talked to that with both of those manufacturers specifically, um, that's going to be a huge push for 2022. So just here in a few months. So I am excited for that because I know everyone just jumps at all of that recycled material. And if you're backpacking, you're already eco-conscious. If you're a scientist studying glaciers, like you're trying to save the world. You want your eco fabric. So we want to give that to you. Yeah. And it's like a recycled backpack. I mean, that's the coolest feeling though. Yeah. (laughs) We don't have many questions left, but out of all of the projects you completed, um, which I know took you a majority of the year because you were working on them constantly. Um, what is one thing you would maybe do differently or change um, specifically or generally, however you want to take that question? Um, I think one thing is definitely get better at like making my patterns beforehand, which I think the backpack would have like benefited from learn to like, I don't know, yeah, like all those like, skills of how to like make gear that actually like fits on your body because that's something that I find quite hard I mean making a tent one tent is one thing but yeah like making something that like fits your body is another thing as we talked about um so yeah that's that's something I really wish I would have like put more time in beforehand because I feel like it yeah might have the result better faster more efficient yeah I would have given up uh after <laughs> seam ripping half of my backpack and then I would have just thrown it in the trash and been like I hate this so the fact that you did it so many times and you're still so optimistic about the whole process but I love that you're like one thing I'm not going to do again (laughs) is rip those seams apart five times but I will get better at making patterns so I appreciate that yeah yeah I mean it's also it just takes a lot of like work to like actually like get better at this patterning so you know like it was like okay guess I'm gonna invest the time like ripping my seams about am I gonna invest the time like learning this skill I probably should have invested it like that skill <laughs> more sustainable <laughs> well it seems like you have many more backpacks and many more projects in your future so I'm excited to see those and, and see what you come up with because your designs have been super rad and, and very exciting to watch and your process has been awesome so we're really glad that you we chose you as one of our adventure sponsors and I mean, we don't give grades out for adventure sponsors because it's just about the process, but you totally crushed it and we're really happy. <laughs> well, thank you guys. Yeah, thanks for giving me the adventure sponsorship. Otherwise, I never would have like dared to make a Cuban fiber tent, for example. <laughs> so mission accomplished. Yeah, well, definitely like yeah, super happy that it worked out and the result's great. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you, too, for being so open about your process. Obviously, we didn't make you share all those things on (laughs) Instagram and stuff, but I know that a lot of the 
obviously part of my job as social media uh, is, you know, browsing Reddit and all these forums and Instagram and Facebook. And I know that you are a pretty important person in the community. And I know that a lot of people look towards you. I know it's probably weird for me to say that because you're like, I'm just a girl making my own gear. But I know that a lot of people look forward to seeing your stuff and that you're so helpful um, when people are commenting and asking questions and giving advice and things like that. So that is what the MYOG community is all about. And you're a really special part of that. And um, just from what I've seen, and I definitely want to thank you for being that person that is willing to share everything that's going on in this crazy brain of yours. <laughs> well, thank you so much. That's really, really nice to hear. Yeah, thank you. of course, your hard work has not gone unnoticed. I know a lot of people aspire to be doing and making those things that you are. And I hope that people listening, um, can get a an ounce of confidence from all this the information that you've given and kind of help motivate someone that they don't need uh the singer hd machine that they can go get a hundred dollar uh 30-year i don't want to say clunker but like <laughs> you know the old the antiquer <laughs> from craigslist and then that you put in the hard work and the research and that that has paid off it's about persistence and um, not giving up. And that clearly shows through every iteration. And learning how to make <laughs> patterns beforehand. <laughs> yes, well, it, it's all a process. But mm. yeah, you've definitely put in the time and the hard work. And it definitely shows and pays off. So great. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Looking forward for the, for the next projects as well. See where this is going to lead. I have one last question that I forgot yes. to mention earlier. How is your adventure buddy? I'm not remembering his name right now, but you brought my elephant. Yes. 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 <laughs> Eddie. Eddie is his name. Um, yeah. He's, he's doing absolutely great. And um, yeah, for those who might not have thought that, yeah, I've got this like stuffed animal elephant. Um, that's kind of like my mascot or adventure buddy, or whatever. And I even like for fun, like designed a little like tags to like, that I put in my gear, which has like, cause his, his name is, Eddie and he loves cookies so I like has like it's like face on it and it's just like the ultralight cookie and um so that's what I mean it's not an official brand or anything but yeah so he's very proud to like have his face and like all my all my gear that I've been making I love that so much Eddie needs his own um mini mini custom pack if you have any leftover <laughs> scraps and a rainy Sunday um that'd be pretty funny he's already got his like all merino shirt so like yeah the, the backpack is, uh, is that's awesome <laughs> oh that's so amazing <laughs> I I feel like we would have we would have been remiss if we didn't bring Eddie into this conversation at all yeah he'll really appreciate that too yeah. <laughs> awesome well that was my last question thank you for spending Great. so much time with us leah and for sharing all these things just for sharing everything we really we really enjoyed your process thank you and then finally um where can people follow you and your past and future adventures um yeah mostly on my instagram when i'm not too lazy to post anything um which is leah hikes and it's L-E-A. Which I tend to do. Yeah, with, yeah, yeah, yeah. Leah without an H, but hikes with an H. So. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you again so much, Leah, for taking the time to join us all the way from Switzerland. 
correct? Yep. Perfect. Yeah. And yeah, for being one of our adventure sponsors and again, for also being such a helpful and informative part of the MYOG community, we greatly appreciate you. And I know that all the other makers out there do as well. Thank you. <laughs> Bye, Leah. Bye.